Most children are comfortable asking their parents for money. Oh, would you buy me a new pair of sneakers? And one day he asked me for something and I said, no, I'm not getting you that. And he said, well, dad, as you would say, don't ask, don't get. And I have buttons that say this or whatever. And he just threw it right back at me. It was really very funny. And I said, touche. That's why we fundraise, right? Don't ask, don't get. Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast brought to you by DonorSearch the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, we speak with Brian Saber, author, president of Asking Matters, and a veteran fundraiser with nearly four decades in the field. In his recently released fourth book, Fundraising for Introverts, Brian challenges the myth that it takes an extrovert to be a success in generating revenue for good causes. We talk about his journey, the significance of close friendships, humor, parallel play, and vulnerability. I try not to spend my life um, editing myself. That's, so, a, um, that's a great philosophy, but it's also, it's, it's hard. That makes you very vulnerable. I am very vulnerable. So don't ruin my life today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly going to try not to ruin your life. I, I mean, well, look, one of the things I was going to talk about with you that does touch on your work and your book has to, has to do with all this idea about, you know, being obviously introverted. But, yes. but what we're saying right now is you just let it all hang out. So how do you get those two things to agree? Have we started the interview? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> don't you have to start it with something or no? No, no, no. It's just no. Talking. We don't. We're just talking. Okay. So, it, well, it's interesting. I mean, you'd have to ask my last twelve therapists what they think about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, well, I it. I we're all complex, aren't we? When we really dig deep. I'm no exception to that. Um, I've always wanted to be accepted for who I am, even though I struggle with that. Um, and I struggle with self-confidence. Um, but uh, I do want, I want to be accepted. I also, I, I, I don't like this idea of sharing some information with some people and some with others. Now, of course, there's some very personal stuff that happens in life that I don't share with virtually anyone. But I tend to be an open book. Mm -hmm. um, and I tend, um, and my relationships, my friends and such, they tend to be an open book with me because I'm an open book. And it gives us a certain depth of relationship, which does link to this kindred spirit introversion piece of me, right? That what I want is real and deep relationships. And if I'm always editing myself and wondering what I should say or not say, then I'm creating a bit of a barrier to that genuine deep relationship. So I think that's part of it, how, how maybe I can synthesize those two. Has that always been true for you though? I mean, was it always that you found this kind of comfortable space and just being authentic, being real with friends, family, and others? Uh, I've probably grown into it. Some of it has come from humor. And uh, I, I love humor. Uh, I, I do think I'm funny and people tend to laugh. I think I'm witty. Uh, and I've always been, but I think I grew into that at a certain point. And part of being witty is taking a chance and putting something out there. Um, and as that developed, uh, it can also be a bit of armor, but I think uh, it, 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 humor has many, many uh, uses, really. It has many uses. And I think I've come to figure out how to use the, use them and in that humor be more honest if that makes sense yeah um 
So, yeah, it's definitely been an evolution because I was shy and I still am. And uh, I mentioned that I'm going to an event tonight. I virtually never go to benefits and I never go to big gatherings of people if I can help it. And um, I'm going to an event tonight. Um, I will share for the Cathedral City Senior Center out here in the Palm Springs area. I know many of the people involved, uh, there's a chance I'm going to be doing some more work for them. One of my dearest friends is on the board and took a table and it felt, and I was invited and it felt I should go to this one. Mm. And I will tell you that I'm cringing right now, that I'm thinking I'd rather be anywhere else tonight, um, no matter what the event is and no matter who is there. I um, I'd rather stay in the rest of the night or just meet with one friend quietly. And uh, I even texted my dear friend, Shelly, who's on the board. And I said to him, when are you arriving? Because the last thing I want is to arrive before him, even though I'll know other people and I can schmooze them. The thought of it um, makes me tired. Yeah. Yes. So there's still that there's that that is a constant in my life that almost whenever I'm expected to show up to a group of people, I cringe inside. That's that's life unscripted uh, with a with a big group. But you've been on a lot of stages. And yes, that's not always scripted either. I mean, you have to interact with the audience and you probably don't have things that you're reading. Um, so how is that comfortable and how long has that been comfortable? You know, being able to step up on the stage and then be, I'm sure maybe a different version of yourself, but still very much you. Well, let me say many actors and many people in public life are actually introverts and it's easier for us if we're playing a role, if you will, uh, and we're in our sweet spot because we're talking about something that uh, we're passionate about and very knowledgeable about, and we want to help. Right? So if someone has a question and we, that's an opportunity for us to be of service. And I love that. I love helping people. So, so for me, it, it works that way. Um, I'm still a, a bit nervous if, if I've got to go to a podium and speak to a room of people, I'm ner- I, I can be nervous. But once I start, I, I know I'm I, I have a commanding knowledge of what I'm doing and that it's really helpful. And it's easier than interacting constantly with people. Doesn't mean I'm not at all, but uh, but it's a little different. I mean, so when you you speak all the time just as i do right How, do you um do you enjoy it does it make you nervous where where do you come down on that yeah it's the Lawrence olivier thing right that that i i heard the the story that he would throw up before every performance and i don't <laughs> do that uh thankfully but um but it is it, you get really nervous there's this energy and excitement and then you take the stage and it feels different if you are comfortable with what you're talking about and you're interested in sharing it with others, you're focused on them and not yourself. It feels kind of empowering. At least that's what I yeah. feel. And I think what I'm understanding you to describe. Yes. Yeah, I do. I, I um, it is empowering. And um, again, I, it's an area where I think I'm strong. And so what I do I, I'm not embarrassed uh, in any way. Uh, um, I'm, I'm in a comfort zone. It's a comfort zone. It's a bit different from karaoke, let's say, <laughs> since we're having a wide ranging uh, conversation. You know that I started singing and I right, I sing and I find karaoke just horrible. I mean, because anything can happen. It's hard to follow along. And many people end up making fools of themselves or at least making big gaffes. And, and boy, is that an uncomfortable place for me because people are looking at me and uh, which I can live without overall. And, and I'm not in uh, my sweet zone. It's not as if I'm this fabulous trained singer and 
and so forth. Well, I, and I do want to get back to your singing because that's that's a great part of kind of your story and how you keep doing these things that you love, um, especially in times when maybe that's a little bit challenging, like during the pandemic. Yeah. But, but I want to ask you a bit about the origin in all this. I know that for me that some of my interest in some of the things that I do today stems from maybe the places where I found fun and comfort when I was quite young. Um, so where did you where did you grow up? For those who don't know your story, where did you grow up? Tell us about your family and where mm. this was and all that, you know, your, your comfort in talking to others in the way that you do. Well, I grew up in Woodmere, New York, which is on Long Island, which is two words. <laughs> and, Long Island. Um, but Long Island, we often say Long Island, but it is Long Island. <laughs> And in a very typical sort of upper middle class Jewish household. Um, uh, 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 but actually, both my parents worked. Um, my mother, not full time, but she was an interior designer. I had an older and a younger brother uh, growing up. And um, and it was and I had a really tough time. Um uh, I was shy. Uh, my brothers were both boisterous, athletic types. And I was a quiet, shy kid who liked to do jigsaw puzzles. And um, I did. I wasn't rough and tumble. I wasn't athletic. Um, so I was a bit odd man out. And then um, uh, I'll, I'll be totally honest. I mean, my, my father had a massive carnary when I was 11 and was in a coma and hospitalized for a month. And I couldn't, we couldn't see him. My younger brother and I we were too young. And then he was home for five months and it really, really uprooted everything. Um, and my younger brother just really got totally out of control and was for many years. And I basically retreated to my bedroom and used to sit and watch television hours and hours every afternoon. Because that was my solace. That was my place. It was either that or I'd be with my friends. Um, I often was at friends' houses uh, because my house was a bit uh, chaotic and unsettling for me often. And um, and I really came to value my quiet time and alone time. And I think one of the reasons I am challenged around people, if I'm around people too much, is I need space. Um, I grew up in a situation where um, someone in my household was taking up a lot of space, my younger brother. And, and to this day, I, when someone's making noise in a theater or standing too close to me on a platform or something, I'm giving you all the deets here, Jay. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, I need more space. And mm -hmm. one of the ways I get space is by being in my own home by myself, um, uh, being where it's quiet, whatever that is. So that has, that's been true my whole life. And, um, I, I'm aware of all that and I work with all of that. Right. And, and, <clears throat> but I'm always careful about my environment. Yeah, because that's actually control. Yeah, yeah, that makes, yeah. that makes sense. But wait, before you go too far away from this, you'd retreat to television. So I, I remember that time well. I also remember the channels there in that area growing up, WPIX and other things. So yeah. uh, <laughs> what what were you watching? What did you retreat to? What were your shows that gave you a little bit of, uh, you know, privacy and silence in the middle of all the chaos? Well, I watched everything. As a matter of fact, somewhere I have a spreadsheet because some friends of mine <laughs> and I tried to make a list of everything we watched growing up. We really? watched so much television. Oh, yeah. um, they, they didn't grow up with me, but we grew up in this golden age of television, the 60s and 70s. Uh, well, I thought it was golden age where, you know, you'd watch every season of MASH and every season of Dynasty and every season of whatever. And I watched all the I used to watch. I was I was I'm I guess I'm I don't know if I'm still dorky, but I 
really was. And I would watch the Merv Griffin show and oh. the Mike Douglas show. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I started in the afternoon with afternoon talk shows, I guess the precursors to Oprah and whatever, and then would go into the serials in the evening from the Brady Bunch to MASH to the odd couple to whatever. I watched everything. And as you know, there were only three major channels back then, ABC, CBS, and NBC. <clears throat> and then you had Channel 9, Channel 11, Channel 13. Um, and you could watch not everything, but tons of what was available. And I did. I also read a lot. I read, um, especially as I got to high school, I was a rabid reader and, uh, but a, a lot of television and some gameplay. I loved board games, uh, loved, uh, whether, whether it was chess checkers or life monopoly, <laughs> Um, Othello, uh, you name it, a lot of board games. You know what's surprising me about this, though, is that I'm not hearing anything about uh, theater. And theater is a huge part of your life, as we'll talk about. But but uh, you weren't doing the school productions or any of that yet? Never. I never acted. Uh, the two years I was on the lighting team in high school for theater, um, I, I did go to theater. My parents took us a fair amount. And as soon as I could get on that train and go by myself, I went off in. So I'd say so in high school. Yes, you could add certainly add theater to that. We, you were talking about home life and yeah. that was home life. But I would I, I saw tons of Broadway. Do you we remember some city. of the first shows? Do you remember some of the first ones you saw? Well, the first show ever was Fiddler on the Roof. Really? Yes. And the reason why I remember that is my mother forever told the story of how I got sick and threw up and she spent half the show in the bathroom with me. No. <laughs> so that's how I remember that was the first show. Changing, um, changing the song to if I were a sick man, obviously. Yeah. Very good. Very good. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. But still, that must have made an impression even. I mean, I, I saw... Um, Whatever was playing, a chorus line. Um, oh, I have to think back. What was in high school rather than college and such? Um, wow, that now now you're challenging my memory in my seventh decade. All right, it wasn't meant to be a quiz. I was just, but I know that the theater was huge for you. It is huge for yeah. you. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah. What was yeah. the what was the connection that you found there? Even going to the shows. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been thinking I, so much for me is through this lens of introversion and uh, that I've been studying and trying to understand myself. And I realized that the activities I like best are what you'd call parallel play for kids, which is uh, I'm part of something, but it's not something where you're always socializing with someone else or interacting. Hmm. Uh, whether it's theater, where which is a communal experience, but you're hopefully sitting silently, um, or it's my yoga, where we're together, but we're practicing and we're not talking to each other. Or, you know, in, in singing, right, where you're all singing in a chorus, you're not chatting with each other, you're making music together, and you each have a part, but you're not spending the whole time socializing and chatting. Um, theater for me, well, first of all, I'm so moved by it, uh, especially musical theater, but also the great, great plays. And I like sitting there in the dark. I love going to movies. I went to tons of movies forever. Um, so I'd, I'd experience it with someone and we could discuss it afterwards. But really, it was like parallel play, right? Because most of the experience, we were quiet with each other. And that's still true today. So that's a piece of it. But I do find theater, good theater, so moves me and it stays with me. And the great musical theater composers and are, are so extraordinary in the emotional stories they tell. And that really resonates with me, all, all performing arts, but in particular theater. Well, that's, that's the thing is that you went, uh, I, I know we're jumping ahead, but uh, you were growing up there and then you went off to school. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember if, was it Brandeis 
or it was okay. good memory. And then uh, you almost immediately were working in this world of performance. Yeah. But again, I guess almost like parallel play, except you were doing a lot more than just sitting there quietly because you were making you were making things happen on this side of the world of, you know, revenue development. So yeah. where was that? That was um, at uh, Joseph Holmes Chicago Dance Theater. Um, so yeah. uh what 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 brought you to that? How do you uh, did you seek that out? Did it find you? Because um, it's one thing to enjoy these things. It's another thing to be instrumental in their being able to put the thing on this on the stage. Yeah, I went off to college really unformed, and I guess most of us are. But I really had no direction mm -hmm. at all. I was not a good student. I wasn't a very interested student in high school. I was bored. I was distracted. And I actually didn't even care if I went to school, but I did, uh, which turned out to be a great thing, at least actually socially. Most of my best friends today are still my friends from college. And while at college, this was what was so interesting. I, uh, I had a work study job that uh, all four years, and I will share with you that my boss, this is funny, my boss, those four years is the gentleman I was just talking about texting who's on the board of this cathedral center. Wow. Is that wild? I have <laughs> stayed in touch with him. I've now known him 43 years since my freshman year of college. He's one of my dearest friends. I adore this man. Um, he was a mentor to me back then and a dear friend. And he lives out here in the desert. And that's how I got involved with this organization whose benefit I'm going to. So that's pretty wild. And that, and that experience, I loved being part of the administration of the school. I loved working with the other administrators who were running the school. And then I started getting involved in uh, as a volunteer in lots of student activities. And I hadn't really been involved in high school, truly. I was I was no I was not an exceptional student in high school in any way. In any way, um, <clears throat> I just wasn't, and I, I really, really enjoyed the experience of working with these student groups to make things better. To, to, I love the sense of community that they brought me, and I decided, even though I was graduating at just when everyone was going to investment banks and all this stuff, that I wanted to work in the arts, and I had a, I had a. Um, an internship after my junior year at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I think a, a fellow alum was the was worked in the marketing department and and through it I got this internship. I loved being there in the museum every day. And um and then after college, well actually uh, I'll share. So after college I my parents wanted me to get a graduate degree. It was a long story, but I went and got to get an MBA in Chicago. And I really didn't want that degree. Uh, it was in nonprofit management, but I was the only person in nonprofit management because I was at the University of Chicago and everyone was studying finance <laughs> and I hated it. And I said, can I please, please go at night and get a job? I just want to work in the arts. And they said, fine. Well, we uh, there was a couple in Chicago I knew because the husband had worked with my father. The wife was at the time the business manager for a performing arts center in Chicago. And I got a job through her. I just wanted a job. I wanted to start working. And that led to some jobs in with little theater companies. And. Uh, and then to Joseph Holmes and what happened to Joseph Holmes, I was still only 25 or 26 where I was executive director is I had to do all the fundraising because uh, that was it. There weren't other staff. There was one other staff person. And then uh, on the non-artistic side and I learned to fundraise and was good at it. And then everyone wanted me to do it. And I was a people pleaser. So I kept doing it. <laughs> that was my way of helping. <laughs> you were just alluding to the styles, which I know we'll, we'll touch on too. But um, <laughs> this, this it, okay, it's one thing to be a people pleaser and maybe the people pleaser and introverted, as you say, but, but then to be able to suddenly be responsible for all the revenue production for this organization, that's a big, yeah. 
How did you find comfort in that? Or did you just kind of plow through it? Plowed through it. Plowed through it. Um, I remember having to write uh, my first grant. So within two weeks of when I arrived, a renewal was due with the Joyce Foundation, a prominent funder in Chicago, you may know them. It was our largest grant. It was $60,000 over two years. So $30,000 a year, our whole budget was $200,000. So this was huge. And I looked at the grant that had been written two years prior, and it was, I thought it was awful, awful. So I said to the associate artistic director who did some admin stuff, her name was Harriet. And I said, Harriet, is it okay if I if I write something different? I mean, I was the head of it, but I didn't know what I had the right to do. I don't didn't know what a grant was. And she said, yeah, I never liked it much. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write it from scratch and then I'm going to reach out to the funder. I just used common sense, mm-hmm. what I thought was common sense, right? And we got renewed and that funder became a real advocate of mine. We became friends. She introduced me to um, Ron Manderscheid in the Settlement House, where I've spent 30 years doing projects. And and that was it. The first one was successful. And I thought, okay, I've got a good gut about this. I need to I need to explain things so people understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, what the impact is. Uh, I hadn't taken any sort of course, but I I knew how to write and um, and I knew how to build relationships. I had really close friends and and. And that's what I did. I built relationships with all the funders, which and as you know, that's as important or more important than the proposal itself. And then that spread to soliciting individuals. And truly, Jay, I just did what I was supposed to do, whether I liked it or not. I did the work. I did the work. And that's, it's as simple and non-strategic as that. When you're talking about doing the work, what is that? For those who don't know this work like you do. Yeah, well, as I explained to everyone else, fundraising, it's, it's a, you have a portfolio like you do as an investor. And you want to maximize all the pieces of it. So you don't put all your time into government grants or corporations or foundations or individuals. There, There's money to be had in all of those areas for most institutions. And, um, and you do the work that builds relationships that lead to annuities of gifts, right? Because you want gifts to keep coming in. And that means forming relationships and keep keeping people informed and making sure they feel heard and important. And I've always catered to people that way. And I did it in fundraising, but that's what I did. I managed, I've never said it this way, but I'm thinking I managed a portfolio. Yeah. Right. I maximized the revenue portfolio for my nonprofit. And and to do that, I knew I had to meet with a lot of individuals and develop those relationships and ask them for more significant gifts than they might have considered otherwise. And that's how I did it. I, I, I don't know if we've talked about this. I never had an ounce of training. I never took a fundraising course. Uh, nothing. I just used my instinct. It's funny. A couple of the things you, you talked about do sound reminiscent of the time because I remember it well. The way you talked about the University of Chicago being the only person in nonprofit management. And then meanwhile, everybody else was doing finance. I think that was the era of Milton Friedman, right? Up there and yeah. all that. So it was yeah. very much a finance focused school. But you also said before that about people going off to college and then going on to Wall Street and going into investment. But you you took another path. Um, where where did your family go? Where, your brothers, did they the, the one who was kind of, uh, you know, well, running his own speed and then the, the other one as well? Where did they go? I, I was totally odd man out. Totally. No one even understood. It's like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? My older brother became a 
a big uh, a lawyer, a partner in a law firm and, and such. And my younger brother went into finance. Um, and I remember I remember my our next door neighbor saying to me, why are you doing that? There's no money in that. I mean, there, you know, this was this was. It, my parents were the first were first generation Americans. Oh, Their parents were immigrants from where? Um, um, I, so, well, actually, I don't know if that makes does that make them first generation or second generation? I'm being dense here, but my grandparents came from Poland, Russia, uh, Germany, and um, and and my. Uh, mother, her family lost everything in the depression, which, and she, she was born in 29, my father in 25 and my father went off to the war and then got a college degree first in his family and went to work. And the idea was to make money and live a comfortable middle-class life, be able to buy a home, put your kids through school, take a trip here and there, have a car and and then the expectation was that the children would go even further, that that they were providing this uh, platform, right, that giving us everything we needed to really flourish. And indeed, my generation is the generation that really took off and with a broad range of people making a ton of money. And the expectation was I would do that. I went off to college to be an economics and computer science double major because I knew I could make a lot of money off that. And I soured on it. I I stopped computer science after a year and a half. It just didn't interest me. And I continued with economics, but, and economics is very interesting. But by the end of my senior year, I had taken nine art history classes because I was much more interested in art than economics. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to be an artist, but that, that's how you know, I ended up at the museum and how it all comes together. So, yes, I went my own way. And uh, and I it, and I don't think people really understood it. I think people really admire that I did it and stuck with that now looking back on all these years. But I think at the time people thought it was a folly of mine. You know, I, it didn't make sense. I grew up with a fair amount. I was very lucky. Um, and I was pretty materialistic in high school and college. Hmm. Um, and then I wasn't. I, I guess I'd had it. You no, know, I'd had it. I I guess I could have spent my life in pursuit of more of whatever that was that I had. But it didn't it it didn't ring true with me. It Yeah. Right. It just. OK, so it's fine. I mean, I wish I could have traveled more over these years. Um, I, I don't, but I don't wish I had fancier cars or a bigger house or a, a, any of those things. I don't know. Do you f- wish you had, uh, some of those things that you gave up? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that every once in a while it'd be nice to, you know, maybe do something I haven't done, but, uh, yes. but I'm not sure that money is always the solution to that. Right. Right. There's a lot of maintenance to the things you buy. Uh, I see with my friends and their, you know, and whatever they have and what it takes. And you can get really absorbed in that. And it's sort of like, look, a car, it it, it, it depreciates as soon as you take it out. Right. I mean, there's (laughs) so, yeah, I think life's about experiences anyway. Um, And that gets back to the performing arts as much as anything and being with people in intimate one-on-one situations. Uh, But that's really what life's about people, uh, people and experiences. And a lot of that doesn't have anything to do with money, truly. I mean, you can't have no money, right? Because destitution will keep you from having a lot, having, um, the wherewithal to uh, for for basic things Mm -hmm. but for most of us who are earning a living and having have a roof over our head and uh, are safe um it's about people and experiences and people and experiences together and uh Yes, I can't afford premium seats at on Broadway, which is frustrating. 
Um, I know many people who can spend the 500 or $600 for the best seat in the house. And I can't do that, but I know how to get cheaper tickets. And, and I see, you know, I still see stuff and, yeah. So you're so, you're not going on the Eras tour, but uh, otherwise you're. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> I definitely am not doing that. Um, no. But you're 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 you go to the shows a lot. Um, you, yes. You, now you only recently moved out yes. to the West Coast. Yes. But before that, uh, I know we're jumping around a bit here. You must you must be seeing dozens of shows a year. Uh, uh, more than that, I probably, um, well, of course I've also been in out here in the winters, the last few years, but, uh, in this spring I went three times a week. Wow. So I saw 30 some odd shows in, uh, four and a half months. And I think I was away a month of that. <laughs> I would see two, some days I'd go to a matinee and an evening performance mm-hmm. And I was just happy, happy, happy as could be. Yeah. I love theater festivals where you go to 10 things in a week. Yeah. Wow. And and that world is one where they they have had traditionally a lot of trouble uh, financially to bring in the revenue, to sell the season subscriptions, not necessarily at a Schubert or something, but in the arts in general, this has been. Yes. A continual well, problem. It's even true. Uh, I, I shouldn't say that. It's even true on Broadway. Obviously, shows close. So, but but in the nonprofit arts community, particularly, yes. it's, it's a problem. Well, today it's a huge problem because what COVID did is it destroyed the subscriber base and the subscribers didn't come back. So at most of the regional theaters, the equity midsize theaters, uh, um, uh, whether it be, you know, in Chicago, the Goodman and Steppenwolf and such are out in San Diego, La Jolla and uh, in in Seattle, Seattle Rep and in New York, New York Theater Workshop and Signature and all these series. They all had these strong subscriber bases. And obviously, um, uh, people, generous people, at least let the theater keep their money for the year when COVID hit, but then there was nothing much to subscribe to. And then they didn't come back. They ended up saying, well, you know, I actually like picking and choosing. I realized I didn't like everything that Goodman did last year and why commit to it. People have become pickier and it has pulled the rug out from under for the nonprofit theaters that are really struggling to figure out a way forward. Um, it's been they had already had a graying problem in yes, they did. a lot of performing arts. Yes. Yes. And now they have dual, dual problems and it, the glory days of regional theaters, the glory days seem to have come to an end. It'll be interesting to see how theaters recreate themselves. And now on top of that, there's the very important uh, DEI movement and BIPOC and for theaters to much more, uh, uh, truthfully and inclusively represent uh, their communities, the world issues, um, and people of all sorts of races, sexualities, backgrounds, and so forth. Um, and those between that and the graying and COVID and the decimation of subscriptions, it's a doozy. It really is. Are you a theater goer? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, what I'm not like recently. Not like you. No, I mean the last thing you saw. uh, Well, I live in Washington D.C. area, so there's not. It's it's not like you have Arena Stage and you have Kennedy Center. I haven't been to Arena in a long time. The last thing I saw at Kennedy Center was, um, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on his name. He's one of the greatest musical performers right now. No, no theater recently here. The last time I saw something in a theater was in London, but. Nice. Uh, but the but the but the problem that we're talking about right now um, is is uh, I wonder if you are finding solutions in it for the people that you work with, because it's as they come out of this, where are they going to go? I mean, what, how are they going to make sure that they try to maintain some of the audiences they had or bring them back while attracting audiences that they already were having trouble attracting in the first place? Well, 
it for first of all, for better or for worse, I'm not working with any theaters currently. I have a a, a, a number of clients, but none of them in theater. Interestingly, mm-hmm. not the moment. So I, I do hear about it through friends who are in theater in one way or another. Uh, obviously, and you can see this, anyone who's interested in regional theater, forget Broadway, because Broadway is a different animal. It is for profit. Uh, you've got a combination of you know, Disney and jukebox musicals and musicals that came from movies and such. There are all sorts of formulas now. But in the um, in the nonprofits, they have really tried hard to be more inclusive um, and not just have the war horses and not just uh, um, um, and that's artistically they're headed in a richer direction, but it's not as popular. Actually, it's proving to be harder to fill the seats. So there are exceptions, but they are still struggling. There are a number of prominent theaters across the country that are on hiatus, trying to figure it out from the Mark Taper Forum in L.A. to Looking Glass Theater in Chicago uh, to, I mean, BAM just cut its new wave festival for this fall down by something like half. I'm going to misquote it, but they've shrunk it incredibly um another uh what other another theater in new york cut out um a significant amount of staff there's a lot of retrenchment and rethinking going on uh and uh and and trying to come up with solutions and i have to say i'm not at the table with it because as I, i don't have clients but i read about it a lot and i i fear for it because almost all the best works start out in regional theaters these days that's where they get their their first showing uh uh whether it's uh, in hartford or it's at la jolla wherever it is in Taman theater in seattle and then they they get a broadway run yeah and the theaters can't invest like they used to in 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 these significant works i don't i don't know where the solution is it's saddens me um as well as it's sad and it does sadden me that I'm seeing less of it. Uh, I'm, I, I really am enjoying, I'm enjoying where I live now, but there is less theater than I'm used to. And, uh, and, uh, I certainly am lining shows up for the times I go back. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about, um, some of the stuff that, that is coming out soon. And sometimes, and sometimes it, there are people in our field who are involved in it, like the water for elephants a show that's coming out to Broadway and they've, they followed that same path you described. They have to go out and they have to find investors and some of the people involved there are actually fundraisers. Uh, Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, nonprofit fundraisers who are working as producers in that show Um, and other things. And, and uh, absolutely it's the, works like a strange loop, which was the last show I saw in, uh, ah, I'm remembering it in London. And that show definitely, I think the birthplace of that show was off Broadway, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was in, in the city. And then it moved to a, a Broadway house. Right. Yes. So in each of these um, cases, they have to, they have to do all this development work that we're talking, yes. not just the development of the show, but also to find out the financing for it and yes. to build the audience for it so they can bring it. And people will say, oh yeah, it's real. And I'm, I'll go buy a ticket, even if you're right. from wherever, Omaha or something. Right. Yes. Angel investors, angel investors, I think. Yes. Yeah, it is fundraising. It's a little different, though. So as we know, fundraising is is an odd bird because what we're giving people in return is a sense of goodness, a sense of sharing, a sense of helping others. And and those do make our lives better. We all believe that we, we know it in our own philanthropy. But at least with these angel investors, they have a chance to make some good money. <laughs> it's a little bit of a roll of the dice. There's a little more in it for them than there is in fundraising. Um, I don't know if you agree. I, I, I'm interested to hear your take, but I, I try to be pretty honest about this. And you, you, whatever we want to say, our donors, we're not equals with our donors. Our donors can contribute, I think, to a million and a half nonprofits. And we have a much more limited pool of people who will contribute to us. And they are sort of in the catbird seat uh, because they have the funds and we need the funds. 
I think though that's somewhat true with angel investors in shows, as I said, there's, there's, um, there is the chance to make it big. And there's also the being up close and personal with the artists, right? which is very intriguing for people who want to put $10,000 into a show and get to come to uh, previews and uh, rehearsals and readings. And what do you think? Would you no, agree? I, 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 I think, yes, I think that's absolutely true. And I'm not sure how often we offer that kind of opportunity for donors to feel mm-hmm. like investors do. Yes. And I wonder about that. Um, Well, it's easier in some fields than others. Right. And some uh, when I work, when I ran this dance company, it was fantastic because I brought everyone in to watch rehearsal. And it was so cool. We would just sit in folding chairs in the studio along the wall and watch them rehearsing a piece and they'd be all sweaty all over the place, the dancers. <laughs> and and then I would take the donor into my office to chat and have a sandwich or something. And they were so jazzed by what they saw. And some, you know, now, of course, uh, technology has enabled so much more of that than we had in the stone age. <laughs> You know, in 1987, when I was the executive director of this company, what did you have? I mean, I guess you could make a VHS tape. Did we? Yeah, we had VHS in '97, oh, yeah. I think. Uh, so you could make a VHS tape, perhaps, to show to someone. Um, and other than that, you had to see it live. Right. That was, <laughs> right. That would. That was it. <laughs> well, that certainly that certainly made it a little easier to say. You know, you do this, and look what you get as a as a result. You get to go and and see the artists on the stage or participate in the program somehow actively. And but now, like you said a few minutes ago, if people become unaccustomed to that, they break from that habit um, as a result of the pandemic, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, then it's hard to get people to say, well, I have to do it that way. I could they might think, well, I can just you know pull it up on my phone. And so yeah. are we competing against ourselves or not? I'm not sure. But the relationship piece, I don't know if that can be replicated virtually. I mean, we're having a virtual conversation now, but we've yes. known each other for a long time. When yes. you're doing this with donors, I know that we can ask people virtually and we can interview them uh, virtually. But it's but it's not the same necessarily as getting to know them, is it? It is. It. So this this is an interesting topic, and I would love to do some real in-depth research on this to understand better how the nonprofit sector as a whole is dealing with it. What I see overall and what I th- well, certainly what I think is going to play out is that over time, maybe even now, we will have more face to face interactions with donors fewer of them in person because people are getting out of the rhythm and technology is taking over, but at least more with a face as opposed to just a voice on a phone call. And I think overall it'll be positive. People will get so used to this type of interaction over the years that it will feel natural. Having said that, I don't, I, I I can't imagine a day where it can be the same as being together in a room. There's a vibrational force. There are all there's there's so much at play when you share space physically that is important. There's a level of commitment to it, to being together, uh, making the effort to be together physically. And I think um, that's going to be hard to make up for in a world that's so much more virtual. I mean. But I don't know, are you are you hearing any research in the field yet on it? No. I mean, of course, the anecdotes are are all largely positive. But what yes. you're describing is this kind of deeper relationship building that you've been talking about in the context of your whole life. I mean, if you just talked to someone yeah. a few minutes ago and or texted them and now you're going to see, you know, you're going to go to an event because they are there and you've known them since you were in college or high school. Uh, or uh, then, I mean, would that have happened if you'd had your first meeting through a Zoom call or, yeah. you know, on a Twitch stream? I don't know. I, it, I don't mean to diminish those things, but they are different. It's a different experience. It is. And when I if I were to. Well, of course, look, we are of a certain generation, so that's also 
Uh, I mean, at this point, most of my best friends, let's say, are set. I make I've made some amazing newer friends, but in person. And that's the way I make them. Younger people, uh, maybe they feel that these virtual friendships are the same. Um, I don't know. They're still getting that will be interesting to see because young people still are going to school and having after school activities in person and and play, right. They're playing with their friends. How can you replicate playing tag <laughs> virtually? How can you replicate uh, so many things? <laughs> well, no, I was just thinking about Among Us, you know, the game. I don't know if you've. <laughs> No. So, okay, well, there's a certain amount of playing tag that's like that, but you're right. It's not exactly the same as running around your house or hiding behind a neighbor's tree. Yeah. Uh, so, it's <laughs> and, and and you remember those things so fondly. You go swimming together right. and you, you're dunking each other, throwing the ball to each other or jumping in the pool together, whatever, all those things. And there, there, there could be a moment where it's all such out of body experience that it is all the same, where we are zoomed in and zoomed out and holograms. But I don't know. It, 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 some of that is hard to imagine. Uh, on the other hand, we have AI and we have all sorts of things now. So I don't want to be I don't want to say none, none of that's possible, but some of it for me is hard to imagine. And and I and uh, uh yeah, and who knows? I, I I can't imagine it if it it being an equal to being in person. You've I mean, been, what we fighting. missed with COVID, right? I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. Please go ahead. Well, what we missed with COVID, what we missed was relationships, was being with people. No one hugged me for three months. It was heartbreaking. Uh, when one friend of mine finally took the risk and hugged me outside, uh, it was it was a it was a moment. It was a moment. You know, you you. I mean, we're animals. We're 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 not wired any differently. We're the, we have the same DNA we had three years ago. We have the same DNA we had a hundred years ago, and yet our lives are completely different. And uh, and I th we're we're just. Um, it's it's bizarre and frightening, actually. Um, we, we need the same things that all animals need. All right. Talk about how you made it through the pandemic. Mm. So, well, first of all, being an introvert, I had an advantage because I do spend a lot of time by myself. I've been single a fair amount of my adulthood, and I've spent a lot of time by myself. I I do all sorts of puzzles every day, lots of word puzzles and other puzzles and jigsaw puzzles I do. And during the pandemic, I the first year of the pandemic, I I did 70 some odd thousand to fifteen hundred piece jigsaw puzzles without looking at the picture. OK, without. So I, I knew what it was. I bought the puzzle, so I knew it was a certain picture, but I didn't look at it as I was doing the puzzle because I had that much time on my hands that I would figure it out by shape and color. Um, <clears throat> I did that. Uh, I did virtual yoga. I did virtual singing lessons. Um, I had some people I Zoomed with regularly. Can you imagine if we hadn't had Zoom when this happened? Amazing. So I would do that. I took tons of walks. I was walking up to 15,000 steps a day. I would walk two miles in this direction to say hello to someone outside and then two miles in that direction. So I did a lot of that. And that's how I ended up coming out to Palm Springs, where I'm now living. Um, I ended up, I, I didn't want to be inside by myself for two months. And I decided to rent a place out here because I'd been coming for years and loved it. And I knew if nothing else, I could be outside in the winter and sit six feet away from a human being. Uh, and I didn't, I couldn't imagine that happening in the dead of winter in New York, New Jersey. So I came out here that, and that, that first winter, and that was extraordinary. I was able to do yoga outside and one of the gyms took all their equipment outside. And so that, that really helped. Um, 
I, I had a routine and I think you had to have a routine in COVID or you just ended up in a blurry mess. And I, you know, I got up every day and I, I did my walking and I did my this and that I really kept to a structure. And most of us were the lucky ones because mm -hmm. we, we were able to work from home. We were able to do all sorts of things that a lot of people weren't. But when you when you're living in such a densely populated part of the country right. and you're living in high rises and you can't even get in an elevator and out of your own building um, and and life is really about avoiding everyone else because you're living on top of each other, that probably does add an extra layer you know, to anyone who's in a real urban environment. Um, uh just really where you're dependent on public transportation, mm -hmm. uh, where there is no space on the sidewalk. You didn't have six feet. You know, how could you have six feet in New York City, let's say? If you went, if you, I mean, I was in outside of the city, which was helpful. And the city was decimated. You know, it was so, it was like a ghost town and streets were empty. Shops closed up. It was... Um, I'm sure you must have felt felt as well, but you're in a suburb. So. Yes. So it wasn't anything like that. Right. Um, but right. but all that's happening and you you decided to sing. <laughs> so how uh, how did this happen? Because I was at your concert and yes. I heard you sing. Yes. So how did you find in the middle of all that find your voice? Well, the, I had started singing a few years before, so I had never sung a note in my life, not in the shower, not in the car, certainly <laughs> not in school plays or anything, nothing, probably because someone must have told me I was tone deaf when I was eight or 10, you know, as a joke. And that was enough for me never to do it because I'm so sensitive. Well, come to the fall of 2016, and I will be political and say I was really upset with the results, uh, my son was taking singing lessons and I was really feeling dead ended in some ways. I was really down and I thought life had gotten a bit stale for me. I thought I needed to do something completely out of the box that would really test me. Uh, that would be outside my comfort zone. And I alighted on music because my son was taking singing lessons and was very interested in music as, as your son is. And, um, and I, so I went to his teacher, Tim, and he said, okay, well sing something for me. And I said, I don't have anything to sing. I don't sing. And I have keep, I have to remind myself, I keep thinking, I've got to ask Tim, what did I sing for him? But he said, you know, I think you have a voice. I'll take you on. And of course, and people have always thought I have a radio voice and this and that, blah, blah, blah. But he he thought there's a voice in there. And fast forward, I started taking an hour and a half lesson every week. And it turned out I could sing. Now I can't sing like Luciano Pavarotti did. I can't sing like, you know, professionally, but I can sing. And three years in, here comes the pandemic, three and a half. And... I had been talking to Tim about possibly doing a little cabaret performance for my friends as a next level thing when COVID hit. And I decided really on a week or two weeks notice to do this concert for my friends and family. I don't remember whether you saw the first one or the second one. There ended up being two. The first one was out of my apartment. It was high to COVID. And so I, I had uh, accompaniments that Tim had made of the songs I wanted to sing. And I stood in front of my computer in my living room uh, with all my friends and family, 200 some odd people watching. And I sang 10 songs and did a little patter in between them. And it was so scary, but so amazing to bring everyone in my world together at a time like that and do something like this. It was really a moment. And then a year later, I decided to do it again. And at that point, we had vaccines. So we were still being very careful, but I could go to Tim's and my son was home. He was my tech guy and we did it out of Tim's studio. Um, and those, boy, was I out of my comfort zone doing that. Yeah, really. 
really scary. Uh, but I think I have learned that those scary moments are the ones where we grow the most. I do believe that. And so I try to have them here and there. That's uh that's something I, I did want to ask you about, because uh, a lot of this conversation, the conversations we've had before have to do with this decision to step out of a box uh, that yeah. we find ourselves in. And you have repeatedly done that. Yes. Um, and you've done that also in your writing. So you never really talked in this conversation about growing up wanting to be an author, but that's exactly one of the things you've become. So now this yes. is four books. Yes. <laughs> it is. And yeah, the last one is wild. on this topic. So of, of introversion and, uh, and so forth, where, where does writing fit into all this? That's another method of finding your voice and deciding to, to speak up. Why, why? Well, I've always loved the written word and the oral word. I love words, love words. I love language. It's a lost art in many ways, which saddens me. But finding the perfect word for the moment, I love. Uh, I love crossword puzzles. I've been doing my New York Times crossword puzzle since I'm a kid. Uh, I mean, really forever. Um, and I like anagrams and puns and cryptic puzzles and, and spelling bee. I'm now an addict uh, uh, to New York Times spelling bee. So I love words and I, I, I've always enjoyed writing and I find, uh, well, I've always written correspondence. So this gets back to that introversion thing. I don't like the telephone. And as soon as I could use email, I was emailing my donors, beautiful notes all the time you know, from scratch with my, with a voice in my voice, and those help build those relationships. I really like writing, crafting that. And the first book, as you know, was about the asking styles, the core concept that asking matters. And, uh, you know, it deserved a book. And I wanted to have a book to codify it. And then the, the second and third books came out during COVID. I didn't even market them, really. Uh, we asked, you know, what got me through COVID? I actually, I wrote two books. That was one of the things I think that kept me rather busy. Um, and, and I, I, I love the, I really love the idea that I'm a published author, that um, there's something amazing about having a physical book that you've written in your hand. Uh, and that my, that my son sees as a, um, can be proud of and, uh, it, it's really a legacy to write a book. So um, I'm, I'm codifying all these things I've been thinking about as a fundraiser and studying through asking matters. And, and um, it's, and it, it feels like a great accomplishment to write one. So now I've got four. <laughs> you just, and, you just, you just mentioned your son there. And when you talked earlier about your family, especially your brother's, probably not really understanding what in the heck you were doing does your son and and does having this book it must feel great as a father to be able to have this physical thing that sets down that that will hopefully outlast us right but it's here for him but yes. but uh but does he understand this this crazy world that you've chosen to live in you know, he does because he's had to listen to me all these years as he was growing up. And and there was a time where I would have him uh, do some work for me, free work. Um, and I'd make him sit down and watch my videos to make sure whatever they were. I didn't need to edit them or this and that. And he learned so much. I'm going to tell you a funny anecdote. Children. Well, I don't know if all children, but most children are comfortable asking their parents for money, right? You, you try and get as much out of them as you can. <laughs> oh, would you buy me a new pair of sneakers? Oh, whatever. Oh, whatever. Yeah. And and, um, <clears throat> and one day he asked me for something and I said, no, I'm not getting you that. And he said, well, dad, as you would say, don't ask, don't get. <laughs> <laughs> which is one of our mottos at asking matters and i have buttons that say this or whatever and he just threw it right back at me it was really very funny and i said touche 
You're right. Don't ask, don't get. That's the, why we fundraise, right? Don't ask, don't get. So he has imbibed it. And what I love most is he is charitable. He understands his privilege. He understands the importance of charity. Um, he supports some charities. He's made nice gifts. Um, and that delights me as much as anything uh, um, that he's sharing whatever he has. So, yeah. So now you're out there in California doing your mm -hmm. thing. I'm sure mm -hmm. still spending a little time back in New York when you can. But where yes. is all this going for you uh, in terms of you've released this book? Um, you've done this thing. You've you've run Asking Matters for how many years now? We went live in 2010. So it's 13 years. 13 years. Wow. Okay. So what's the undone thing? What's the stage that hasn't been, you know, stepped on? Retirement retirement what does that look like oh it looks really good um it it retirement includes a lot of yoga and hikes uh some gym a lot of volunteering um pickleball <laughs> like all 60 plus year olds are doing these days i had a, i have another lesson coming up <laughs> So I'm playing pickleball. Um, culture, always culture here and wherever. I mean, I'm, 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 I go to things all the time here, just not as much theater. Um, I was at I went to an amazing reading yesterday afternoon and I went to a preview of a movie two nights before that. And I went to a cabaret performance last week. And yeah, so always as much performing arts as I can get. Um, some travel if I can afford it, um, and hopefully grandchildren, if my son is listening to this. <laughs> wow. That's not pressure at all. <laughs> Actually, he told me that he and his girlfriend want three kids. They both want three kids. They're only 20. He's 22, but they're serious. I hope it will last. And, um, I am really ready. I want to be a grandparent more than I want anything else at this point, I think. I can't wait to have grandchildren. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.